Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Welcome to tonight's episode of the Bore You to Sleep podcast. We're going to visit readings from The Cultivation of the Native Grape and Manufacture of American Wines by George Hussman of Herman, Missouri. The book was entered according to the Act of Congress in the year 1866. I hope you enjoy it. Please, if you get a chance, as always, jump in, leave a rating on the app, and in the meantime, sit back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Introduction It is with a great deal of hesitation I undertake to write a book about grapes, a subject which has been and still is elucidated every day, and about which we have already several works, which no doubt are more learned, more elaborate than anything I may produce. But the subject is of such vast importance, and the area suitable for grape culture so large, the diversity of soil and climate so great that I may be pardoned if I still think that I could be of some use to the beginner. It is for them and not for my brethren of the craft more learned than I am that I write If they can learn anything from the plain talk of a practical worker to help them along in the good work, I am well repaid. Another object I have in view is to make grape growing as easy as possible, and I may be pardoned if I say that. In my opinion, it is a defect in all books we have on grape culture that the manner of preparing the soil, training, etc. are on too costly a plan to be followed by men of little means. If we are to first trench and prepare the soil at a cost of about 300 per acre, and then pay 200 more for trellis, labour, etc. The poor man, he who must work for a living, cannot afford to raise grapes. And yet it is from the ranks of these sturdy sons of toil that I would gain my recruits for that peaceful army 
whose sword is the pruning hook. It is from their honest, working hands. I expect the grandest results. He who has already wealth enough at command can, of course, afford to raise grapes with bone dust, ashes, and all the fertilizers. He can walk around and give his orders, making grape culture an elegant pastime for his leisure hours as well as a source of profit. But being one of the first class myself, I had to fight my way up through the untold difficulties from the lowest round of the ladder. Had to gain what knowledge I possess from dear experience and can therefore sympathize with those who must commence without means. It is my earnest desire to save them some of the losses which I had to suffer to lighten their toil by a little plain advice. If I can succeed in this, my object is accomplished. In nearly all our books of grape culture, I notice another defect, especially in those published in the East. It is that they contain a great deal of good advice about grape culture, but very little about winemaking and the treatment of wine in the cellar. For us here at the West, this is an all-important point, and even our Eastern friends, if they continue to plant grapes at the rate they have done for the last few years, will soon glut the market and be forced to make them into wine. I shall therefore try to give such simple instructions about winemaking and its management as will enable everyone to make a good, saleable and drinkable wine. Better than nine-tenths of the foreign wines which are now sold at two to three dollars per bottle. I firmly believe that this continent is destined to be the greatest wine producing country in the world. And that the time is not far distant when wine the most wholesome and purest of all stimulating drinks will be within the reach of the common labourer and take the place of the noxious and poisonous liquors which are now the curse of so many of our labouring men and have blighted the happiness 
of so many homes. Pure light wine I consider the best temperance agent, but as long as bad whiskey and brandy continue to be the common drink of its citizens, we cannot hope to accomplish a thorough reform, for human nature seems to crave and need a stimulant. Let us then try to supply the most innocent and healthy one, the exhilarating juice of the grape. I have also endeavoured throughout to give plain facts, to substantiate with plain figures all I assert, and in no case have I allowed fancy to roam in idle speculations. I do not pretend that my effort is the most comprehensive and practical essay on the grape, as some of our friends call their productions, but I can claim for it strict adherence to truth and actual results. I have not thought it necessary to give the botanical description of the grapevine and the process of hybridizing, etc. This has already been so well and thoroughly done by my friend Fuller that I cannot do it better than refer the scientific reader to his book. I am writing more for the practical farmer and would rather fill what I think a vacancy than repeat what has been said so well by others. With these few remarks, which I thought due to the public and myself, I leave it to you, brother wine growers, to say whether or not I have accomplished my task. To all and everyone who plants a single vine, I would extend the hand of good fellowship for he is a labourer in the great work to cover this glorious land of the free with smiling vineyards and to make its barren spots flow with noble grape juice, one of those best gifts of an all-bountiful creator. All hail to you. I greet you from the free Missouri. Great culture and remarks on its history in America, especially at the West, its progress and its future. In an old chronicle entitled The Discovery of America in the 10th Century by Charles C. Praster, publish at Straussland, we find the following legend. Leaf 
son of Eric the Red, bought Bayan's vessel and manned it with 35 men, among whom was also a German, Turka by name, who had lived a long time with Leif's father, who had become a very much attached to him in youth. And they left port at Iceland in the year of our Lord, 1000. But when they had all been at sea for several days, a tremendous storm arose, whose wild fury made the waves swell mountain high and threatened to destroy the frail vessel. And the storm continued for several days and increased in fury so that even the stoutest heart quaked with fear. They believed that their hour had come and drifted along at the mercy of wind and waves. Only Leif, who had lately converted to Christ our Lord, stood calmly at the helm and did not fear, but called on him who had walked with the water and quieted the billows with firm faith that he had also had power to deliver them, if they but trusted in him. And behold, while he still spoke to them of the wonderful deeds of the Lord, the clouds cleared away, the storm lulled, and after a few hours, the sea calmed down and rocked the tired and exhausted men into a deep and calm sleep. And when they awoke, the next morning, they could hardly trust their eyes. A beautiful country lay before them, green hills covered with beautiful forests. A majestic stream rolled its billows into the ocean, and they cast the anchor and thanked the Lord who had delivered them from death. A delightful country it seemed, full of game and birds of beautiful plumage, and when they went ashore, they could not resist the temptation to explore it. When they returned after several hours, Turka alone was missing. After waiting some time for his return, Leif, with twelve of his men, went in search of him. But they had not gone far when they met him laden down with the grapes. Upon their inquiry, where he had stayed so long, he answered, I did not go far. When I found the trees all covered with grapes, 
and as I was born in a country whose hills are covered with vineyards, it seems so much like home to me that I stayed a while and gathered them. They had now a twofold occupation to cut timber and gather grapes. With the latter, they loaded the boat. And Leif gave a name to the country and called it Vinland or Wineland. So far the tradition, it is said, that coming events cast their shadows before them. If this is so, may we not recognise one of those shadows in the old Norman legend of events which transpired more than 800 years ago. It is not the foreshadowing of the destiny of this great continent to become in truth and verity a wine land. Truly, the results of day to day would certainly justify us in the assertion, and there is as much, nay more, truth than fiction in it. Let us take a glance at the first commencement of grape culture and see what has been the progress in this comparatively new branch of horticulture. From the very first settlement of America, the vine seems to have attracted the attention of the colonists, and it is said that as early as 1564, wine was made from the native grapes in Florida. The earliest attempt to establish a vineyard in the British North American colonies was by the London Company in Virginia about the year 1620 and by 1630. The prospect seems to have been encouraging enough to warrant the importation of several French vine dressers, who it is said ruined the vines by bad treatment. Wine was also made in Virginia in 1647 and in 1651. Premiums were offered for its production. Beverly even mentions that prior to 1722, there were vineyards in that colony producing 750 gallons per year. In 1664, Colonel Richard Nicoll, Governor of New York, granted to Paul Richards a privilege of making and selling wine free of all duty he had been the first to enter upon the cultivation of the wine on a large scale. In his description of the province of New Albion, 
published in London, Beauchamp Plandinet, in 1648 states that the English settlers in Newdale, now Delaware, had vines running on mulberry and sassafras trees and enumerates four kinds of grapes, namely musket, sweet-scented, great fox, and thick grape. The first two, after five months, being boiled and salted and well-fined, make a strong red Xeres. The third, a light claret. The fourth, a white grape, which creeps on the land, makes a pure gold-coloured wine. Tennis Pale, a Frenchman, out of these four, made eight sorts of excellent wine, and says of the musket, after it had all been long boiled, that the second drought will intoxicate after four months old, and that there may be gathered and made 200 tons in the vintage months, and that the vines with good cultivation will mend. In 1633, William Penn attempted to establish a vineyard near Philadelphia, but without success. After some years, however, Mr. Tasker of Maryland and Mr. Antle of Shrewsbury seem to have succeeded to a certain extent.